0: Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger at First Baptist Church, Gulf Breeze, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. Open your Bibles to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. This morning I was asked, by my little joke teller in First Baptist, she said, Mr. Jeff, Pastor Jeff, do you know how Moses made his coffee? I said, I don't know. She goes, he brews it. (laughs) Come on, y'all. That was funny. I don't care who you are. (laughs) Maybe it was a delivery. Oh, jokes are always funnier from a third grader. You're right. So there is weeping and wailing and mourning across the country today. People all over this country, all over this land, woke up in tears of joy or tears of sorrow. The king apparently has been dethroned. Yes, we're talking about King Sabin. Alabama lost yesterday. Does anybody know that? Did y'all hear that news? You know, I I was thinking about this and imagining what it would be like to be a football coach because they have a job that is 365 days a year, but they are judged on 12 days a year. Really not even 12 days. They're judged on a few hours a day on those 12 days. See, the bottom line is, if you are a coach, you are, are judged completely on whether or not your team wins or your team loses And oh, it's even worse than that. If you happen to be Nick Saban, you are judged whether or not your team loses at all. Because the bar is raised to the point of saying, if you lose a game, you stink. You're a horrible coach. And you know all of this stuff that's being thrown at him now. And my question is this, is that really fair? Come on, answer that. Is it really fair? After all, do you know all that goes into coaching? I don't, but from what I understand, it's a whole lot more than just standing on the sideline. In fact, the real work is done not at the game, it's done all throughout the week and all throughout the year. It's who you recruit and all this kind of stuff. As I was thinking about that, I was imagining that it's kind of a lot like a preacher's job. You've heard the joke before, right? Oh, so you're a preacher, so you work 30 minutes a week, right? Right? The truth of the matter is, preachers are judged based on how they perform on Sunday mornings most often. They have 52 Sundays to prove themselves worthy of staying or worthy of having to find another place. Now, that's a little bit of pressure if you let it get to you. But what I want to say to you is this, the church is more than just what we're doing right here, right now with me on a stage and you sitting in a chair. The truth is, I had an experience this week that, that really brought this to the forefront because, because uh, it, the way God just works it all out is, is He oftentimes allows me to experience, like in, in real life and physically, what it is that He wants us as His people to understand. So this week, I'll just tell you, I've wrestled with today's message. I thought, it was, I thought it was gonna be an easy week, easy because I knew what I wanted to talk about, I knew what I believed the Lord wanted to say through me, but I found myself going through text after text after, not text, but passage after passage after passage and not seeing any passion. And I don't know about you, but trying to say something without passion is really, really tough, to be honest with you, a lot of preachers just succumb to that, and they say, "Look, my job is to preach. I'm just gonna, I'm just going take something. I'm just gonna say it. There, there's no passion there." But that's not the way I work. The way I want to do it is, I, and the way it works is, is I listen to what God wants me to say because I believe this is a holy moment, and I listen to what He wants me to, to, to the text that He wants me to share. And that text has to become part of me so that the preaching comes out of my soul and out of my heart, because I've, I've waded through the text and I know the text, and it's something that's alive and breathing and active. And this week it just didn't happen. And I find my, found myself going, "Man, I've got no passion for this at all." And then all of the questions, So what do I do? Because tomorrow morning, starting at nine o'clock and then at 10:30, I've got to say something. And the people are saying, hey, you got to say something. So you wouldn't believe what went through my mind. Because what I wanted you to hear today is this. Encourage each other. I started off in Acts chapter 14 with Bar- Barnabas. Just wasn't worried. So then I went into 1 Thessalonians when the scripture in chapter 5 says that we're to encourage each other. And then went all the way to some other texts. And I finally wound up in Hebrews chapter 10 but even Hebrews chapter 10 didn't really incite a passion. It was this, it was this weird, strange thing. And so my decision last night, late, late at night, was this. I closed my eyes to finally go to sleep, and I said, Lord, I got nothing. So I'm just going to stand up there and say, the Bible says, encourage one another. And that's going to come over and sit down. And say, all right, my job is done. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite what I was expecting. <laughs> because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's this expectation that you're going to come on Sunday and you're going to get something, right? And fortunately, when I woke up this morning, I had this overwhelming sense that this is exactly what God had planned Amen. because it occurs to me that often in our lives we hit a wall we get to this place where it just doesn't feel right just not feeling it. I'm just not just not I mean I, I want to it's, it's not like I don't love God I just don't you know and it occurs to me that in our lives we get into those places where we're stagnant. And we get into those places where no matter what we do we cannot incite inside of us this joy and this passion and so we, we just kind of, just kind of there. And the text this morning I think will help us. So Hebrews chapter, 12, chapter 10, starting in verse 19. This is the author of Hebrews encouraging the the people of God, and we know that because he says, therefore, brothers and sisters, this is written to the family of God. This is written to the people of God. Now, the primary audience was, that they were Jews coming out of a Jewish system of sacrifices into a new covenant, as we'll see here in just a moment, but no doubt they were wrestling at some point, either they did or they will, they were wrestling with the, the whole idea of, man, I, I know God now. I'm, I'm, I have the ability to be next to him and close to him, but I'm not quite sure what to make of that. See, they were used to doing things a certain way. Now that they were in a new covenant, there's no doubt that they were, they were, some of them at least, were kind of floundering, much like maybe somebody here today is. When I started the service today by saying there's somebody here not here by accident, there's somebody here today I'm absolutely certain who your faith is stagnant and stale and you're really, really, really frustrated at that and you just don't know what to do. But I hope this serves to show you that God knows even the depths of your heart. Because this morning he brought you here so that you could see what Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19, has to say about your faith. He says, Brothers, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he begins by saying, Know who you are because your feelings can deceive you. Your, your, your um, perceptions can deceive you. The fact is, when you have been born into a family, you carry on the genes and the name of that family. No matter how badly my kids might want to do it, they can never escape that they were born into our family, Shannon and I's family. They are Spoonie Bargers whether they want to be or not. They can even physically change their name but that doesn't Move the DNA of who they are the Bible says therefore brothers and sisters since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus you if you know Jesus Christ have the boldness to enter the sanctuary of God which means you have a personal one-on-one relationship with the creator of the universe full stop period exclamation point nothing else needs to be spoken say, well, I I just, how does it Look, that's the whole mystery of the gospel. You've been given access where you don't deserve access. You've been given freedom where you don't deserve freedom. You've been given hope where you don't deserve hope. And I say we, you, by saying we. What the scripture's saying is that you've been given, that you have boldness. Now, boldness, you could also insert the word courage. You could also insert the word um, "without fear" to enter the sanctuary. Now, he goes on to explain this. Verse twenty: He has inaugurated us for a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. Since and since we have a high pre, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. So, in other words, he goes back and he's explaining to these Jewish. Believers, what has actually taken place. And here's what has taken place. In the Old Testament, God laid out for the, Jew, for the Jews, it's recorded in the Old Testament, He laid out for the Jews a sacrificial system, a covenant between Abraham and God. Now Abraham, we know, is the father of all of his descendants. And so because of that, everybody after abraham that was born into his family they were were what we would know as the jews the israelites right or israelis there's a lot of different titles but essentially the people of god they were chosen by god and the covenant was i will be your god you will be my people The way that covenant was enacted though, was that on a yearly basis, the Jews would have to offer a sacrifice to God as a way of reminding them of their need for God and yet as a way of God reminding them that he loves them and has called them and has rescued them. So it's this relationship of a father and a son or of a God and a people. And that relation, and that covenant was by the blood of a sacrificial animal. And so if you look in verses 1 through 18, it actually explains this. Without we don't have time to do that today, but 1 through 18 says the blood of these sacrifices could never fully cover over the sin of the people. So every year the sacrifices were made simply to remind the people that they needed forgiveness, but that forgiveness was granted based on a future event of a final sacrifice now let me explain this so there was a tabernacle and that tabernacle had a curtain and in the temple there was a curtain and so you had this 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 picture of a place where God dwells and in the very center of it was a place called the holy of holies that was cut was separated by a curtain That curtain could only be breached one time a year by one person who was the high priest of the people, and he could only breach it one time a year, and before he could go in, he would have to purify himself because it was a picture of the fact that God was perfectly holy and we could not make our way to him, but the high priest could on that one day to make atonement for the sin of the people, right? And so that curtain was the barrier. So up until this point, the Jews understood that God was distant, that God was separate. They could only get to God through the high priest or they could only get to God from a distance. And what God did when Jesus Christ died was he canceled or he fulfilled that old covenant and started a new covenant. That new covenant was this. No longer do any sacrifices have to be made because one final sacrifice did all of the work that needed to do. And as the scripture records, when Jesus Christ hung on the cross, his flesh was ripped. And when his flesh was ripped, that was a a picture of or the reality more like it of the temple veil being ripped and so in the moment Jesus died God himself ripped the temple veil from top to bottom exposing the holy of holies to all of the people so when Jesus was on the cross and his flesh was ripped when he gave up his life he was exposing God to all of the people And so when the scripture says that we have this boldness to enter into the sanctuary through the blood of Christ, that's what it means. When Jesus died, he gave us direct access to God. Now I say all of that to say we can know that, but we can still feel separate from him. But feeling separate does not change the fact that his name is on the back of our jersey. And it doesn't change the fact that we still have boldness, we can still have courage, we still have access, even when we don't feel like it. And sometimes when we don't feel like it, what we have to do is hold on and push through. And that's what I want you to hear tonight. So many people give up because their feelings outrun the fact of their faith, their feelings are doing all kinds of stuff in them and they're listening to their feelings and they're not allowing the truth of what God has said to give root and take, take root and to give birth to life inside of them. And so if you're here today and you are a mature believer, it is likely that you don't listen to your feelings as much as perhaps a younger believer would. But even a mature believer gets to the point sometimes where they wanna feel something, amen? Amen? Y'all ever been there? Y'all ever been to that point where you open the Bible and it's like nothing is working? I mean, I'm, I, you know, I even got to the point one time where I was like, okay, Lord, here we go. You know, you ever done that one, right? Lord, just speak to me anything. And sometimes God is silent. Sometimes we're like, my prayers hit the ceiling and I don't, here's what I want you to know. How you feel doesn't change the fact of what God has said. And he says this, he says there is a new covenant. The veil has been ripped in two and even though you don't feel like you can be in his presence, you can still be in his presence. And as Kevin has said, sometimes you just have to sing louder even in the midst of not feeling like singing. I do believe you can sing your way out of just about anything, by the way. I really do. I think that's a gift of, of singing. Let's continue with the text. It says, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, so in other words, we have a, a high priest. It's no longer a man who is flesh and blood. It's the man Jesus, God in the flesh, right? So it's no, it, let me say it differently. It's no longer a sinful man. It's the perfect man. It's Jesus, the son of God, who has become our high priest or our mediator, So that we have direct access to God. And so he says, because this is the case, let us draw near. You know, the Jews would have no concept of drawing near. Because there was always that barrier. Even today in most parts of the world, because in most religions, you cannot draw near to God. The amazing thing about our God is that he calls us to draw near. But he's the one who's scooting close. He's the one that's already drawn near. The Bible tells us in Acts that God is not far from us at all. Even though you can't see him and even though you can't feel him, he is literally right there. You say, well, why in the world would God allow me to go through this? Why in the world would God be silent? Why would he allow me to not feel his closeness and his presence? Well, I can think of a couple of reasons. Number one, sometimes sin is the instigator of not feeling the presence of God. Sometimes we can, we can sin in a way that will cause us to be moved away and God's silence is a way of drawing us back into himself, back to himself through repentance. Now here's what I want to say about that though. Do you know that every sin you've ever committed, if you know Jesus, has been forgiven and every sin you ever will commit has been forgiven by Jesus? Your past and your future sin has already been forgiven forgiven. That's what the Bible means when it talks about the imputed righteousness of God in Christ. So your righteousness is not dependent on each individual sin or not sin. It's not works based. Your forgiveness has been granted at the cross and when by grace through faith you have been saved, you have been totally forgiven, totally made righteous in terms of your standing with God. But... That's not to say that when we sin, we're not to ask for forgiveness. You say, well, wait a minute, I'm confused. You're not asking for forgiveness so that God will forgive you then. You've already been forgiven. You're asking for forgiveness as a way of reminding yourself and as a way of humbling yourself before God saying, Father, I've sinned. Because here's the deal. He's known what you were going to do 10 years from now. You cannot sin and then surprise God with it. You can't do something and go, oh man, God, I know you didn't see that one coming. No, he knows what you're going to do 10 years from now and he's already covered it at the cross. That's the beauty of the gospel. Some uh, face will teach you that, that every time you sin, you have to run back for forgiveness or you're in danger of eternal separation from God. Imagine living that way. Imagine the guilt of living to where each next sin condemns you, but then you can be forgiven. If you just, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that if you've been born again, then you've truly been born again. You've entered into the family of God and you become His child. There is a security and a hope there. When you sin past that point, the forgiveness or the confession... It's not so that God can physically forgive you at that point, but it's so that you can restore the relationship that you need to restore with God. So sometimes God is silent, sometimes we don't feel him because of sin. That's not all the time though. Sometimes it's because God is moving you to a deeper, more intimate level of relationship with him. And the way that he does that is by drawing away just a little bit, causing you to struggle Have you ever been on the struggle bus? Sometimes sometimes it seems like the struggle bus doesn't ever end, right? Here's the cool part. If you will stay on the struggle bus when you're on the struggle bus, eventually you will see a breakthrough. I'm cautious about using that word breakthrough because sometimes the connotations are not all that great. But listen to me. And it's going to tell tell us here in the scripture in just a minute. If you will stay on the struggle bus long enough, eventually the struggle bus is going to let you off. But when he lets you off, it's going to be in a place that you could not have gotten in any other way. And then sometimes your struggle is for other people. Sometimes God allows you to move through the struggle because he is... He is giving you the understanding or the ability to to empathize with someone else either in your life or somebody he's going to bring into your life. It's amazing how if you or I have struggled with something and we start talking about it, somebody else who's dealing with that same thing, they perk up and they're like, whoa, tell me about this, right? Because you've walked in the shoes that they're walking now. Sometimes those are some of the reasons. There's other reasons, I'm sure, but the reality is the Bible says that there is a fact, there is a real relationship, and we are to draw close to God even when we don't feel like it, but the way we draw close to God or the condition by which we draw close to God is with a true heart in full assurance of faith. True heart. Now, you might have an NIV that says a sincere heart, we draw close to God with a sincere heart, which means without hypocrisy, without ulterior motives, without some, some manipulative ideas of what we're going to do, we come to God simply because we want to know God. And when we do that, we do so with full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. That's what I was talking about a moment ago when I said that you've been forgiven of past and future sin. You know, the enemy is really, really crafty, isn't he? He likes to come back and throw things up in our face. He likes to come and he likes to show us how, how we were or the, the, how, how we're not where we need to be or whatever. The Bible calls the devil the accuser of the brethren. In that moment, you and I need to realize that we have been fully washed, fully forgiven, fully clean. Sometimes the guilt that we feel is not because God is putting it on us, it's because we are allowing the enemy to remind us of somebody that we no longer are. If you're born again, you're a new creation. Now, that's not to say that sometimes guilt isn't justified. Yes, sometimes that guilt is justified. By the way, you want to know the role of guilt? The role of guilt is to expose brokenness. The role of guilt is to expose sin. But if that sin has already been dealt with, if you've already confessed it, when that guilt comes up over something that you've already dealt with, that's the point at which you need to say, I have full assurance and full confidence of my faith. I am not going to wrestle in this guilt any longer. In fact, we talked about freedom. That's, that's a freedom that when you find it, it's life-changing, amen? When you find freedom from your past, it's life-changing. And it's almost like, I, I see it like Wizard of Oz. You know, the devil is like this little man back behind the curtain who sounds really, really big. But when you put light on him, when you expose what's going on, And the way you do that, by the way, is through the truth of God's word. When you say to him, this is what the Bible says that I am and this is what the Bible says about my sin, you have no accusing authority over me. That is true freedom. But so many times we cower under the voice because we haven't exposed what's actually going on we haven't exposed who he is. Let's keep on going though because I don't want to run out of time. So he says that we are to with full confidence or full assurance of our faith with our hearts sprinkled and our bodies full of water we're to hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering since he who is promised is faithful. You see that? Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. It's this confidence it's this surety of knowing that Jesus Christ is the victor in every situation. Now what's the word hope? The word hope means even if it doesn't look the way I want it to look, I still believe there's something different. Even though it looks like a dead end, there's not a dead end. Even though it looks like all is lost, there is still the hope or the possibility or rather the assurity that what God said is going to happen. Think of all the times in the Old Testament that hope had to prevail or should have prevailed. Israelites are up against the Red Sea. How are they going to get across? That's a no hope situation except for God said I'm going to make a way. Tower of uh, 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 the, the walls of Jericho that's a no hope situation except that God said I'm going to tear down the walls over uh, Elijah when he's up with the 450 and then 400 other prophets on top of Mount Carmel. That's a hopeless situation. My God against all of your gods, right? God prevailed. Why? Because we have the full assurance of knowing that our God is faithful. If you hear nothing else today, I want you to hear that. The God that explains, the God who you see described in the scripture is the same God that you claim today and you place your faith in. And if God was God yesterday, he's the same God today and he's certainly the same God tomorrow. But this is the part where I really want to land, okay? It says, let us hold on. By the way, you remember that comm- not the commercial, but that picture where you've got a, a bird, a seagull eating a frog? And you see this lump in the seagull's throat. But then you have these arms that are coming out of the mouth. Squeezing the throat of the seagull. You remember seeing that picture? That's the definition of holding on. It's knowing that all seems lost. But I'm not going to let go. I'm going to hold on. Because there's a promise from God. That he'll never leave us or forsake us. Another picture of holding on. God showed me this a long time ago when I was a young father I don't remember which one of my children it was but we used to take walks and I would hold their hand Or I would I would usually say here hold my hand And so they would reach out and grab my hand But my hands are pretty large and when they put their hand in it was it was like this And so they really thought that they were holding my hand, but the truth is I was holding theirs and I'll never forget this one particular time. We were walking and my, my, my stride is rather large compared to a little kid. And so, you know, I was just walking normal. They were like, I mean, they were just, their feet were just trying to keep up. And I didn't even realize it. And I remember whichever kid I was holding on to, they tripped and they started to fall. And if the truth is, if they were holding on to me, they would have fallen. But see, they weren't really holding on to me. I was holding on to them. They had to reach out their hand. They had an active part in this walk, but the real strength was that I was holding them, and when they tripped, I just did this. And then I gently landed them back on the ground, and we continued our walk. It's kind of funny, because when I did this, their legs were going all over the place and everything. Just just sit them back down, and in that moment, I'll never forget it. God said, that's exactly what it's like to walk with me. You think you're holding on to me, but I'm really holding on to you. And when you trip as long as your hand is in mind, you're not gonna fall in a way that's gonna harm you because I'm gonna keep you and I'm gonna hold you. This is the confidence we have in God the Father in whom we've placed our trust It says, let us hope, or let us hold on. So my word to you today is hold on. Verse 24, let's land this plane. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works. You see what it says? Let us watch out for one another to provoke or to spur or to prod. Think about that. You are here today so that you can provoke one another. What does it mean to provoke? It's the same picture as if you have some logs that you made a fire with. When you first start the fire, those logs are flaming up and you're experiencing the heat and you're experiencing the joy of watching it. But as, those, as, as the fire burns, the flame starts to fizzle out and before long, you just have these smoldering logs. And so what you do is you take a stick or you take a metal prod and you poke them, right? You move them, you shift them, you shake them up because it infuses oxygen into the fire which creates another flame and so you're back to where you're supposed to be in the first place. For you to provoke each other is to literally prod each other To turn each other over, to introduce oxygen, to give life so that the flame does not die. Here's the thing, there's no family on the planet that should do this better than the people of God. If you get more provoking from a civic club than you do from your church, something is wrong. Somewhere, something is wrong. If you get more provoking and more life from a team than you do from your church, something is wrong somewhere. It could be with, it could be here, it could be there, it could be both, but something is wrong, and here's why, because the church, the people of God, were is, is designed to breathe life and growth and maturity into each other for eternal purposes I'm not saying those other things are wrong or bad I'm saying there's something unique about the characteristics of a church that should be a life-giving people so this whole thing that we got right here where you're sitting there looking this direction I'm up here looking this direction and I've been talking for about 40 minutes that's not a bad thing but that is not what church is all about the teaching of God's word. So I'm provoking you right now. I'm hope, hopefully I'm poking you in a way that you're a little uncomfortable. If you never leave here uncomfortable, I haven't done a good job with handling God's word because you know as well as I do that God's word doesn't always make us comfortable. Sometimes it makes us irritated, but with a obedient heart and a submissive heart to God, it always leads to life. So that irritation is necessary for growth and maturity in life. Does that make sense? So when it says, let us provoke each other, I'm saying to you, you should provoke each other today. Now, it's not just Sunday. You got to understand too that they didn't just meet once a week. They met every night in homes. See, we're trying to squeeze seven days into two hours. I got news for you. We're not the body of Christ we need to be if we're squeezing seven days into two hours. If there's no life on life, if there's no interaction, and and here's another thing, if there's no, no willingness to let you provoke me and me to provoke you, if we're all just holed up and tightly held into ourselves, we are shortchanging the work of God in our lives. In fact, he goes on to say, let us not... Uh, uh, we're supposed to provoke each other, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other often and all the more as you see the day approaching. Gathering together. Look, I get the online stuff. There's There's nothing inherently wrong with that. That's fine. There's a time and a place for that. But if your entire spiritual journey is online... You're shortchanging the work of God in your life. When I say online, what I'm really talking about is if it's a passive online experience. If your spiritual life is is listening to podcasts and it's and it's doing things where you're just receiving, but you're not giving, and you're not you're not you're not. Uh, uh, you're rubbing up against people, you're not allowing them to have access to your soul and you having access to them, you're shortchanging your spiritual life. It requires vulnerability. It requires showing up consistently and allowing people to have access to those places that God is at work. You say, well Jeff, you're just trying to get people to come to church. No, here's here's the thing. Church is not for me. Church is for you. I say it this way. Nobody wants to do online weddings. Nobody wants to do online retirement parties. Nobody wants to do online birthday parties. Yes, sometimes we do, but the reality is the people you love, would you rather talk to them digitally or would you rather talk to them face-to-face? Does anybody only want a digital relationship? No. Even the most introverted still want a face-to-face relationship. I'm not sure how we change the culture completely. All I can do is say that biblically speaking, you are here to provoke one another. That means you got to put your big girl pants on or your big boy pants on because sometimes provoking hurts, and then sometimes the provoking is actually a good thing in that it's encouraging. But either way, the goal is fanning the flame of what God is doing inside of us. Amen? So. What would it look like? I just want you to be thinking about this. What would it look like in our church if we lived this passage more consistently and more faithfully? What does provoking one another look like? See each other more than Sunday. Yeah, we would have to see each other more than Sunday, wouldn't we? Or we'd at least have to communicate more than just Sunday, right? It means we'd have to give ourselves a part of ourselves to other people it means that we would have to sacrifice our own comfort it means that we would have to be willing to say and really mean tell me what I don't know or tell me what I don't see wouldn't that be a good thing now here's the good news I see this happening so I'm not saying I am seeing this happening. This is a good thing. This is an encouragement to us to continue the work of God because it's a beautiful thing. Amen. Amen. So, one of the things we've been talking about—I say we—we've we've just kind of kicked it around. Some of some of us is uh, having a consistent, encouraging service where all we do is show up, we worship. And we share with each other what's going on in our lives. I don't know how you do that with 60 or 80 people, but what if we tried, right? Kind of my fear is we'll show up and nobody will say anything, but I kind of know you and I kind of think that that wouldn't happen because some of y'all won't shut up. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Me, that's right. Here's your job today. Before you leave this place, would you find someone to encourage? Because we talked about provoke. I don't want to leave it just on provoke. And provoke's not a negative thing. Provoke is a give, yeah, but encourage. Find a way to encourage somebody today. And, and let it be something more than superficial. Oh, you look nice today. That's cool. I mean, everybody wants to look Nice. But what if there's something else that you can encourage them in? And by the way, sometimes the encourager is the one who is most encouraged. Because when you encourage someone and they say, that's exactly what I needed. That gives you life, doesn't it? We got enough people tearing you down. We really don't need any other naysayers. What we really need is brothers and sisters in Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, it is my prayer that you would, um, that you would fan into flame the, the family, the responsibility to provoke and to prod and to spur and to encourage. Father, I pray that we would not lose hope, that we would hold on to the hope. Father, I pray that we would draw near to You with a true and sincere faith or a true and sincere heart. And over all these things, would You let us put on love so that we love each other in the name of Jesus, the way you've commanded us, and really given us the privilege of doing. Father, we have something that could never be duplicated anywhere else in the world. We have a group of strangers that have come together as a family. And so Father, help us to really maximize who we are for your name's sake. God's people said, Amen.